is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Programme. Today, we are excited to bring you the next instalment of our increasingly baffling slumber time stories. But first, attention all sailors. Back due to not entirely unpopular demand, here is the shipping forecast issued by the Albion Meteorological Coven at 0200 hours, standard New Albion time, uh, partially adjusted for spring. Oi there, me arties. This here be the shipping forecast issued by the Albion Maritime Agency at 0200 hours. You join us here aboard my good old lightship in the Albion Estuary. My job is to sit up on deck here and watch the other boats going out to sea. Now, if there's any dangers in them there waters out there, serpents and monsters cracking and the like, then my job is to light me lamp here and warn those passing vessels of the dangers in the waters ahead. Now, since my first shipping broadcast, I've had a few very rude messages sent to me via semaphore from you landlubbers. And they've been questioning the validity of this here shipping forecast, asking where I get my information from. They say, an humble fisher folk like me, what do I know about matters of meat meteorological forecasting? Well, listen up here, you landlubbers. Shows how much you know. You ever seen a cow or a goat or a lamb on board my boat? No, you ain't. There ain't no fresh meat on here. There ain't no meat. Just good fresh fish caught every day. I don't do no meat meteorological forecasting. Listen up, you landlubbers. This is proper, old-fashioned, fish-o-logical forecasting. Ah, and now for the information of you landlubbers out there. Every evening I come out on the deck here and I predict the weather. I take my fishing trawls and I cast them about the deck, I do. And then I take my lucky charm here, I do. Makes a pretty noise, don't it? I found this floating in the water, so I did. It's a bit of old bone here and then there's these bits of coloured ribbon attached to it. And these jangly bells here. It's a strange object. There's this here bone. It looks almost human. I've never seen a fish with human bones before. It must be magic. But anyway, it's mine now. And I shake it about so I do. And then... I summon forth from the deep the sea witch and I ask her what the weather will be. Now let me tell you of the sea witch. She lives in the oyster beds and she is widely revered around these parts as wise in all manner of sea serpentry. She makes a good living scaring young children with bits of dead jellyfish 
selling bits of old mud and shingle to passing seafarers as a cure for male pattern baldness. Now, baldness is somewhat rife amongst the sailing and pirate community, hence the fashion for wearing elaborate hats out at sea, even though they are blatantly impractical in high winds. Now, that there sand and shingle never did cure much male pattern baldness, and the sailors would often leave it lying around where they moored their boats. Soon great piles of it built up, and it just so turns out that those piles of sand and shingle left along the shoreline built excellent sea defences, allowed the building up of a number of fine coastal towns they all owe much to the sea witch, so they do. But they didn't always understand it, those folk. They always remained suspicious. And as industry grew and more people came, witchcraft began to fall out of fashion, you see. Looking a bit funny and living on the edge of the village was no longer enough to gain the public's respect as a trusted medical practitioner. And soon, a booming trade grew up in publicly burning old ladies, just like the sea witch. And so, up the Albion estuary one day, came the great witch finder general. And in return for a few gypsy tarts, he promised to burn that old sea witch. And after watching the sea witch filter feeding on plankton for some time, he declared that she had clearly signed her immortal soul over to the devil. He knew that that sea witch loved terrifying the youngsters with jellyfish. So he fetched some local school children and lined them up all along the shoreline as bait. And sure enough, the sea witch emerged from the sea, waving her jellyfish wildly all around to terrify the children. At once, the locals set about her and threw her into the local dungeon. And of course, there's only one cure for witchcraft, said the Witchfinder General. And that is a good burning. And so those local landlubbers came and they built a great witch barbecue on the beach. And they all gathered around. Now, you see, the problem was the sea witch weren't any normal witch. She was a mollusk who spent most of her time lurking in the rock pools. And she was rather wet and soggy and proved impossible to light. Realising his error, the witch finder at once filled his pockets with the remaining gypsy tarts and set sail back up the river for the city. The people jeered at his little sailboat as it disappeared into the distance and hurled raw sausages and burger meat at him from their cold barbecue. The sea witch saw her chance and slithered free from her bonds and back beneath the waves. And there she still lurks. But she can be summoned by my ceremony, ladies and gentlemen. For you see, the sea witch is able to control the winds. Blowing cold from the north, storms from the south. Gentle breezes clearing those clouds from the west and the sun from the east. We are all at the mercy of her whims. For without her, the seasons would not change.
your land-loving crops would fail, and fishermen would never return home with their catch for your dinner. Now I'm told that even to this day, you land-lovers still gather on a May Day and must sacrifice a Morris dancer to ensure the changing of the seasons once again. And indeed, if any of you have been worried about climate change brought on by all these mechanical noisy machines, you can sleep easy here in the land of Albion, because there are more than enough Morris dancers to ensure the changing of the seasons for many years to come. So make sure you get out there. Burn them and chuck them in the sea each and every May. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I must go and get back with my lucky charm here, which I found washed up in the sea, and get back to talking to the sea witch to find out which way the wind might blow tomorrow. I bid you farewell. Well, that certainly sounds like a day to avoid water at all costs. In fact, it's rather put me off my cup of tea. Oh, well, moving on. Now on the Light Programme, we bring you Slumber Time Stories. And this week, it's Section 2 of Part 3 of a three-parter. We are still awaiting Part 1, uh, but one can only hope it inches closer with each further reading. Mind you, I'm not holding my breath. ARC presents Section 2 of In the Shadow of the Moon, Part 3, by Darren Callum. Where is Mrs. HF to make some sense of this ear-booing nonsense? Spluttered the PM. What goes oob oob? Interjected Miss Carr Shulton without being asked. But before anyone could consider this further, she continued, A cow going backwards! And proceeded to laugh herself half to death. I'm here, Horace. Announced the wizened tones of Mrs. Hildebrand Fogg, as her immense frame waddled past Fitch and towards the PM. Mrs. H.F., was a rotund but extremely ancient woman, whose creased face recounted the decades of valiant service she had given to the homeland. Her silver hair tied in the neatest of regulation buns, she walked steadily but slowly, with only a gnarled walnut cane for assistance. Pausing only to tickle Mrs. Tickle, between the ears, and offer a cryptic, Oh, you're the spit of your great-grandmother. The cat purred contentedly, with only a slight melancholic afternote. Oh, there's not time for any of that, Gladys, spluttered the PM, who seemed suddenly to be on first-name terms with the senior civil servant. Apparently this cat is from space. The moon is on fire. 
And there's some sort of ear booing somewhere we need to fix yesterday, if not before. Oh, really, I, I don't know what to make of any of it. What's to be done? Undeterred by any of this ranting, Mrs. H.F. tottered forwards and took the message from Gunquit, examined it carefully on both sides, and then tutted to herself. Well, uh, we do have some chaps on the moon. Uh, why not ask them? What? exclaimed the PM in a quite unusual high-pitched squeaky tone and went bright red in the face. How the devil did I not know this? He glared at Gunquit and the astronomer in turn, who both shrugged and tried to look at something else. This was particularly tricky for Carl Shulton, strapped to the telescope as she was, and another head was nearly removed. Oh, chaps on the moon and bloody moggies too, no doubt, yelled the PM, who then felt his legs go slightly wobbly, and Gunquit had to move sharply to prevent him collapsing. Get, get off me! I'm perfectly all right, shouted the PM, although he clearly wasn't. Blasted chaps on the bally moon, for heaven's sake! Someone could have told me this! I'm only the bloody Prime Minister, after all! Oh, I expect none of them knew. It was a while back now, explained Mrs. H.F., hoping this might calm things down a little. But if anything, it seemed to make matters worse. Oh, that, that's just ruddy perfect, spluttered the PM. Incompetent bunch of buffoons, the whole blasted bunch of them. At this point, before the PM could spontaneously combust, the door opened yet again, and the familiar shapes of the Right Honourable Arthur Coward, Homeland Defence and Attack Secretary, and Wrigley Buttercock, Procurement Minister, stepped in. Are we interrupting something? inquired Coward politely, surveying the PM's murderous glare and the rest of the motley crew trying to avoid it. But before anyone could utter anything by way of reply, the second figure, Buttercock, a rather handsomely mustachioed man with dark curly hair and a smart velvet jacket, caused rather more of a commotion than a procurement minister had any right to evoke. As soon as he entered the room, Fitch had locked eyes with the familiar, unblinking man. For a moment, there was a staring standoff of South American proportions as neither man moved. And then, with a guttural yell of, He's one of them! Fitch had moved rapidly for a pistol hidden in his heavy coat. But before he could reach it, however, Mrs. Tickle beat him to the draw. With a screaming meow, she leapt for Buttercock's feet, and in less than an eye-blink, the elegant man vanished. Leaving only the cat with something very small in its mouth, and Fitch pistol in hand, frantically scanning the room for his mustachioed nemesis. In this split second, the PM's legs had finally given way, and he'd passed out cold. Meanwhile, Miss Carshalton's hair appeared to have stood even further on end, should such a thing be possible.
once the commotion had died down a little. Mrs. H.F. bent over very slowly to pick up the cat and examine the small metallic object in her mouth, which resembled a tiny metal mouse on wheels. Oh, good kitty, she purred. Good work. You've done your great-grandmother very proud. Calling quickly for orderlies to attend the PM and marines to secure the room, Gunquit turned to the senior civil servant and murmured, I think an explanation will be in order. Mrs. H.F. nodded sagely, and despite her great age and creaking bones, helped Gunquit attend the PM, adding softly, I think what you young whippersnappers need is a history lesson. And whether they liked it or not, that was what they were going to get. Once order had been restored, the whole team, minus the long-disappeared Buttercock, had moved under armed guard to the cabinet room, which was deemed to be more secure. Professor Lushthorpe was summoned to lend his technical advice, and the royal astronomer was reluctantly persuaded to unattach herself from her telescope contraption to attend unencumbered. Once all were assembled and tea and bickies finally served, Mrs. H.F. began to fill in the still rather cross PM and his staff on how it was that New Albion, or in matter of fact, Old Albion, came to have a force of some thirty or so soldiers stationed on the moon. It came out in this lecture that the whole force had been beamed there on one of these ear-boo, or, if you prefer, earth-to-moon, light elevator contraptions, some fifty-odd years previous, in order to counter the first Martian invasion of Earth. They were, as had been alluded to, cats amongst their company, whose primary job was to detect Martian holomatrons, or hard-light people. With Fitch also contributing his recent adventures, it became apparent that these light people had already infiltrated the government at the very highest levels and had been directing operatives to retrieve parts for the light elevators from all corners of the globe, seemingly at the behest of the government. But all along, it had been to construct an elevator receiver station to commence a new invasion of Earth. Why they had returned and how they were to be defeated were beyond the understanding of Mrs. H.F., despite her razor-sharp memories of the First Great Martian War. But she vowed to work with all concerned to get answers to these questions. Although the knowledge for training holomatron-detecting cats, along with an entire moonbase full of commandos, had long been lost from collective memory, it seemed that they had managed somehow to keep the training alive on the moon. And they thanked all the was holy that Mrs. Tickle III was now here to sweep the halls of government clear and assist in training a new generation of cats. Fitch 
with his close encounter with the new arrivals and stolen plasma gun, was tasked with assisting with defense and help with planning an immediate offensive to attempt to disable the new Moo-Ear before more war materiel could be transported down. In a final decision, it was resolved to try and work out where in the world the fabled Ear Moo-B might be located, and if there was anything at all that could be done to get it working again. Then perhaps they could send more troops to the moon and get to the bottom of what was going on up there, and how and why it came to be on fire. It was with grim determination and a sober realisation that the PM called the cabinet meeting to a close, shaken to his very core by the knowledge that the second great Martian war was now upon them. Well, that's all got a bit procedural. Uh, well, never mind, because Mabel has promised me that next week it's part one. And so that will all make sense, I'm sure. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All characters and stories are copyright to and performed by Darren Callow. With the exception of the shipping forecast, which was created and performed by Frog Morris. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production, Albion Radiophonic Corporation.